Everybody wants to scale up these days. Big topic, right? Well, in this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast, I visit with Paul Jarvis and we talk about his latest book, Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. Check it out. Welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance. My guest today is Paul Jarvis. He teaches online courses, runs several software businesses, and hosts a handful of podcasts from his home. He's also the author of Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing for Business. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. So your intro, I think, is almost intentionally um, sort of small sounding, isn't it? Um, I think a little bit, but I also think it was funny because one of the first things my um, agent and book pub publisher asked was, well, what awards do you have or, or that sort of thing? And I was like, I don't actually have any. I've never actually tried to win an award. I don't know what I would get an award for. So I think some of it's intentional. Some of it's just, that's just the way that, uh, the way that my work works. Well, I guess the point of that comment really is that that those who know you know that you're quite accomplished in what you've done, <laughs> and and I think that that you know I, I think in some ways you're maybe giving people hope that hey, it's okay to record a podcast from your home. You can still have success on those terms, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm also Canadian, so there, there's a bit of there's a bit of a lack of hubris sometimes. I think you haven't apologized yet, though. <laughs> so. You know, the big term right now, of course, the big concept is scaling. So in some ways, uh, you can make a people can make a case for saying you're sort of anti-scaling. Yeah, that's kind of the, the point. So I guess the point of the book and the point of kind of where my thinking around this idea has been is not that scaling is bad. It's just that scaling should be thought about first. And I think this actually applies to a lot of things that we should probably think about things before we do things. <laughs> for for the most part, it kind of makes sense to, to do that. So it's not really a book about anti-scaling. It's more a book about considering whether it makes sense or not, because it doesn't always make sense to scale. Yeah, and that's a great point, because I think a lot of people just get caught up in the, well, if I start a business, that's the goal, right? And And not necessarily, what do I want, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times people kind of they start the business and then work backwards trying to make it work for the life that they want and go the opposite way. We can think about the life that we want and then build a business that obviously is profitable because that's the point of business, but that also supports the life that we life that we want, right? Like for myself, I don't want to have to manage a team or have to work 16 hours a day to, to make enough money to survive. So I don't want to build a business like that because that doesn't support the life that I want. And I kind of think every lifestyle business gets kind of a bum rap. But I, I, I kind of think that every single business is a lifestyle business. Like the friends that I have that have venture backed like Silicon Valley tech companies, they have a very specific lifestyle that their business makes them have. Right. So I think every business has the possibility of being a lifestyle business in so much that you can kind of pick what you want. You know, I, I sometimes think there's a lot of confusion around the terms um, growth and scale that, that people kind of see them as the same thing. One of the things that I've seen, at least, is that I think scale can imply doing more with less. I mean, I think it can it can also imply that you're more profitable because you've developed systems and things. I think sometimes scale gets a bad rap. Yeah, you're speaking my language here. I think that there's things that are really good that 
for scale that don't necessarily mean growth. And I think a really good example of that is a newsletter. It takes me as much time to write an email to one person as it does to write an email to 30,000 people. So that to me is a great example of scaling my reach, for example, that doesn't require, I don't need 30,000 people writing one email to 30,000 recipients. So I think scale, a lot of times, if we do it properly, doesn't have to require the the growth or the expenses required for that growth. Freelancing is is you know gr- I mean I don't know what the numbers are but I'm you know I'm sure it's in the multi hundreds of times percentage growth that uh, you know pretty much everybody that has a job is freelancing uh, today it seems like. Um one of the points I know that you make in the book and I know that you do this in your courses and a lot of the work you've done is that you know a lot of freelancers just think of themselves as gig workers or you know, I've got some spare time to do this. So, you know, it's not really a company. Um, So how is freelancing, you know, different than say a company of one? Yeah, I think they can be the same, but where they're different is, and I know this just from experience of teaching thousands of freelancers, mostly in creative industries, is that they tend to work in their business so much that they don't think about working on their business And what I mean by that is we can get caught up in client work. And I mean, if our business is doing well as a freelancer, we're doing, we have a lot of client work. But if we don't stop to think about um, like filling the funnel a bit further down the road, then there'll be this feast or famine thing. If we don't think about things like taxes or accounting, we could get uh, into trouble at the end of the year with, with our governments. So I think that there's, there's a, and we also need to think about things like how um, word of mouth is, is working for a business. So a lot of freelancers, that's their main source of um, of like finding new clients, is keeping in touch with people and keeping that network really strong. So I think that a lot of freelancers don't treat their business like a business, and either way, it's still a business. So I think thinking about how to make um, make freelancing into a business and keep thinking about it like a business is always really, really important because like I said, it is a business whether you think it is or not. So is there sort of a critical mindset shift that that occurs when somebody decides, yeah, I'm a company? Um, well, I think that's definitely it, when they start to consider profit, that's that's always important. I think there's a lot of things that can be hobbies and hobbies are great and you don't need to worry about profit with a hobby. (laughs) The best thing about uh, a hobby is you don't have to worry about the money side. But when you want something to support you, you have to start to, especially um, in freelancing or when you work for yourself and build solo products, I think we have to consider um, what enough is. So what would be enough to sustain this as a business long term, or even in the beginning, what would be enough to sustain this month to month? Like, how much income do I need? Because if we figure those things out, then we can work backwards. Say we need five thousand dollars a month, and we're charge we want to charge a thousand dollars. Well, can we find five clients per month to cover just those bases, and then six to be pro- six or more to be profitable? Right. So I think we need to start to think about like what enough is. Like, how many clients is enough? How much profit is enough? How big our audience should be is enough. How much time spent on the business is enough. And I think a lot of times the enough question is probably one of the most important things. It's the main reason why I wrote the book because we all start from zero, right? We all start a business without 
like a backlog of clients. I mean, it's really hard to start like that. But we all start at kind of zero and build up. So we all need that growth mindset to get to enough. But where a lot of us don't think about it is if we don't consider what enough is and then change based on if we've reached enough or not. So if we have enough revenue, then maybe we don't need to keep growing and growing and growing. We can start to optimize for that revenue instead. And so I think that's probably one of the one of the most important things. One of the challenges that a lot of people getting started, even if they have that kind of plan, like here's where I think I want to get, is the, and I hate the term shiny object, but no question opportunities, <laughs> you know, pop up. Gosh, should I chase that? Should I chase that? Do you or did you kind of have a filter that allowed you to decide? Because sometimes opportunities sound great and, you know, sometimes they're dead ends. Uh, sometimes they just are distractions. Maybe they just replace, you know, the money you were making over there. Um, so, so do you have kind of a process that you go through to say, you know, is this, you know, pros, cons? How do I consider this? Yeah, I think for me, so the first thing, uh, like mindset wise, is I consider what the maintenance cost because every opportunity has a has an associated cost, right? So I consider, okay, if I say yes to this thing, what does that mean for a, a whole bunch of things? So what does that mean for my profit? What does that mean for my existing customers? What does that mean for my happiness? And what does that mean in terms of maintaining this long term? Like, say I want to add another course to my roster or add another client or add another feature to a product, I'm going to have to then be able to sell that new feature. I'm going to have to support that new feature. I'm going to have to probably build other things around that feature to make it work better. So everything has a cost. And I think if we start to think about what's the reason we started this thing in the first place, this business, this freelancing, whatever we want to call it, what's the reason we started this and what do we want to get out of it? And I think if we have, it sounds a little hippy-dippy, but like I think the more that we have and consider what our purpose was for starting, and it can change, granted, it can definitely change. But if we have a purpose, I feel like that's the best lens for decision-making we can have when we work for ourselves. So if we have a purpose in mind for what we want to get out of it or what we why we're doing it in the first place, then we can say this opportunity doesn't line up with this purpose, therefore... It's okay if I turn this thing down. It's okay if I maybe lose a bit short term, but gain a bit in the long term. I mean, because I've been doing this for 20 odd years. I kind of think long term <laughs> with a lot of the decisions that I make. Yeah. And and obviously experience uh, ends up teaching you that, you know, because I think there's this like, I'll never get this chance again, you <laughs> know, kind of mentality. I think experience teaches you, yes, you will. <laughs> and and so yeah. I think once you get confident in that, it makes it a little easier to to trust your gut, I think. Uh, my favorite chapter in the book is a, t a chapter called The One Customer. And I think that a lot of freelancers kind of tend to think, you know, you think of an Upwork project or something, you know, it's done. <laughs> I never really met the customer. You know, I delivered the product. I mean, I don't really even think of it as a customer. It's more of a product or a project. Um, but I think, I think that the m one big mindset shift that you identify is that I think when somebody decides they have a company of one, all of a sudden this customer is something to grow, isn't it? Yeah, I think that like in all like I've done all sorts of types of business and I've worked with all sorts of customers from Fortune 100s to startups to entrepreneurs. It's all like business is always and I hate like business sayings for the most part, but there's one that I actually like and I think it's business is all about who you know. So I think building relationships and fostering relationships in the long term 
just makes a lot of sense. I think whether it's um, startups or freelancers, I think we we tend to focus more on acquisition than retention. And it's cheaper to retain customers if you're a freelancer. If you've already worked with somebody, the sales cycle can be shortened because you don't need to convince them to work with you anymore. They did. They hopefully liked it. They just have to say yes or no to a new project. If it's a if it's a tech company or a, or a SaaS product, then retaining the customer just means that they don't cancel and churn out. So I think focusing on making, and these are the people who are already paying attention. These are the people who probably already like our work if we're doing good work. Then it makes sense to pay attention to them. It makes sense to listen to them. It makes sense to not let those relationships die. I mean, even looking back to when I did freelance work, I had some customer or I had some yeah, I had some customers that were probably 13, 14 years of of work. And sometimes we would go a year without working together. But because I would keep in touch with them and because I would reach out to them often, even if there was a bit of a slow time, all I had to do was email my existing customers and say, hey, just checking in, see how your business is going, see if there's anything I can help with. Just in doing that, I could fill my client roster for a month or two. So I think keeping keeping in touch with people is such a, an underutilized skill. Yeah, and that what, that one tip that you just gave really works for any business. If you, if you've got a <laughs> it's list a magic past, email. Yeah, it really is. If you've got a list of past happy customers and it's a slow Friday, you know, just send out an email. So one of the things that's made this company of one idea so viable really is all of the tools and technology and and automation you know that we have available. Um, what what's some of your let's make this a two part question. What's some of your favorite tools for automation and then what are some of your kind of famous no-nos for like abusing automation (laughs) so i really like email i think email well so one email um, marketing uh, newsletters accounts for most of my revenue so i would be silly (laughs) if i didn't really like that so i think and for me the 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 way that i use it and it's funny because everybody's always like oh email is dead email is dead and i'm like i feel like i'm the guy in the back raising my hand like I don't think so. So I keep. I've had a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, which is good because it's called the Sunday Dispatches. So it makes sense that I send it uh, once a week. I've had a newsletter since twenty, since November twenty twelve. So it's about six years old. And every week I send an article to my list, and that just keeps in touch with people. It keeps reminding people. <laughs> keeps reminding people that I exist. And it also like. I sometimes have things to sell, not all the time, but sometimes there's something to sell. And by keeping this cadence, this really regular cadence of showing up for people saying like, hey, I still exist. <laughs> Here are some thoughts that I have. It shows people that like, oh, OK, I, I really resonate with these things that Paul is saying. Some people, not all people, but some people. And then when I do have something to sell, it's not like I'm just hounding them to get something for myself. As I've been providing value for them, sometimes for years, sometimes people are on my list for years before they buy something. So then it feels like there's some reciprocity there. So then the sales cycle just becomes, hey, I made this thing. It, maybe you want to check it out. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I laugh because I get those notes all the time. People, I've been following you for 10 years and finally decided to buy this. So I, I got to figure out how to shorten the sales cycle. So. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think <laughs> that can be good. And then as far as things that I don't really like using. I don't like any tool that is um, real-time or that shows my status. (laughs) So I really dislike products like Slack because it feels like there's... I even dislike... So things like that, I don't even need to single out Slack, but just any service that shows 
my status, even Skype, I only signed into Skype to use it. And I think that a lot of times we have this FOMO about, oh, I'm going to miss something. So I need to stay logged into everything or I need to get notifications for all of the things. I don't know how I could work. I don't know how I could accomplish the tasks I need to do on any given day if I was interrupted when I'm doing my work. So if I'm working on something, I can't leave Slack open. I can't leave Skype open. I can't even leave social media open. So if I'm writing, the only thing I have open on my computer is my writing software. If I'm on Twitter, the only thing I have open on my computer is Twitter. And I don't get notified of things that I'm not focused on or things that I'm working on. So I think that there's a lot of technology now that allows us, like we were talking about, that allows us to scale without growth, which is awesome. But I also think that we can fall into the trap of, of just being interrupted by all of these great technologies. So I try not to let um, that happen as, as much as possible because I like, to, I like to get my work done and then be done work <laughs> for the day. So I'm curious, and this is just on a personal note, what's, what is your uh, writing software? Um, I use, so I use, I, I like IA Writer for just me writing. It's just a markdown, a nerd. So it's just a markdown, um, minimal software app. I use for collaboration, I use Google Docs because it's just the easiest thing when I'm working with copy editor, an editor, a collaborator. But then my publisher, I think all publishers are old school, so I also use Word, but I don't, I begrudgingly use Word. I actually had to buy a license to Word for the first time in 10 years. Just <laughs> That's so funny. We're getting ready to bore our listeners to tears here. But uh, <laughs> my uh, uh, current book, I just, I, my, I'm working on another book right now, and I'm writing the entire thing in Google Docs, and I convinced my traditional mainstream publisher to take the manuscript in Google Docs. Can you believe Awesome. That? So excited about that. Your power of persuasion is greater than mine. I tried to do the same thing. It didn't work. <laughs> One of the things that um, I was really happy to read this line, I, uh, because I've believed this forever, but you said this really uh, well, that education is a marketing channel, a serious marketing channel. And I think a lot of people don't, I don't think people appreciate that. We've all bought into, yes, educate, educate, you know, write useful content. But I, I think you take it a step further, really, and talk about it as, you know, the tool to actually grow your customer base, your existing customer base, and that you should teach everything. You should, um, you should look at that as a, you know, as as a product opportunity. And I think a lot of people who do say design or, or really any kind of work, you know, really underestimate the power of that. Yeah, I mean, it was funny when I was when I was doing web design, I noticed that the only thing web designers wrote and shared on the internet were things for other web designers. And I always found that weird because no web designer would ever hire me because I was a web designer too. We had the same skill set. So when I started to think about content, I thought about, okay, well, how can I, what can I do to create content for people that hire web designers? So I started to write articles uh, on the subject. I wrote a book on the subject. And then I noticed that my schedule was so full, I didn't know what to do with it because people were reading the things that I was writing that were looking to hire web designers. And because they had read that from me, they thought, okay, this Paul guy is the expert on this subject. So why wouldn't I want to hire the expert on educating clients on successful design projects? Because he's the one who's sharing this knowledge. And it became a really easy sell at that point. It was just people had already heard of me. It was more just a matter of seeing if it was a good fit to, to work together than having to pitch or sell anything. So I've kind of taken that and run with it for for the rest of my business life. 
Well, and I, and I think um, I think a lot of people I, I can't people are getting off of this a little bit, but imagine ten, fifteen years ago, nobody was really educating. You know, you were selling, and so um, when I was out there telling people that no, you know, tell them everything. You know, reveal all the candy. Don't don't hold yeah. anything back uh, because they don't want to actually do it themselves. They just want to know that you know how to do it. Um, and that's the best way to, to demonstrate it. And it, it, it is I'm, – I'm glad we've come around. Yeah, people get so – like feel like they're backed into a corner if they feel like they're being sold to. But people listen a lot more if they feel like they're learning something. They pay attention. And that attention is is gold when you, when you are trying to sell something. If you don't pay attention to the selling, you pay attention to the teaching, then you're right. They're just going to be like, this person knows what they're doing. I'm just going to pay them. Well, or or they go out there and try it and they go, gosh, dang, this is hard. <laughs> I'm really going to – I am going to hire somebody. Yes. So uh, you mentioned hippy-dippy. So let's finish on uh, um, a, a concept that I love and, and I'd love for you to expand on how you apply this to a company of one and that's this idea of finding your true north. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think that and even I think I kind of felt that way too. I mean, I live in the woods on an island that's very hippy and dippy on the west coast of Canada, so I feel like I'm surrounded by this and I feel like I push against it and so I think that in the beginning I thought that having um like a purpose or a north star for my business was too in the realm of like, well, businesses are supposed to be profitable. So why would I worry about applying my values and what I want? And I think that that was to my own detriment. I think that if we, it just becomes, I think a lot of times we have, we get, we get tired from having to make decisions all the time in our business. And I mean, business is a lot of, if you run a business, you have to make decisions all the time. And that that tires you out. It's funny. I was reading an article in The Atlantic about how tiring making decisions is. And I was like, this article is speaking to my life. So I think to come around to the, the part about having a purpose, I think that, um, and like I said earlier, I think that having a purpose alleviates some of the decision making. Because if we know why we started the business and why we want to run the business and kind of where we want to take it and why we personally, like, if I think about success, I see what success looks like in the media. And then I think about if I applied myself to that version of success, one of two things would happen. I would either get it, which means I would win at what I was challenged by, but I would ha- I would be left with somebody else's version of success, which wouldn't be mine. So I kind of wouldn't win. And if I didn't win at achieving that person's version of success... I would be left feeling like I failed, but I failed at something I didn't actually want in the first place. So I think if we define what success looks like to us, and it's different for every single person, like I did so many interviews for the book, and what success means to you isn't what it means to me. There could be similarities, sure, but it's always different. So I think if we have a purpose, then it becomes a a wholly pragmatic exercise, which is the opposite of hippy-dippy at least in my mind, where we can... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm getting ready to print t-shirts. Fail at something you wanted to fail at. I love that. Exactly. It just it just makes more sense from a pragmatic standpoint to, to be able to do that. So I think having a purpose just makes it easier to make decisions and it makes it easier for us to align with where we want to go because we're the ones steering the ship. So if we end up somewhere we don't like, it's our fault. <laughs> I, seriously, I'm stealing that. and You're going to see it in my, uh, my next book. Um, so speaking with Paul Jarvis, uh, author of Company of One, depending upon when you're listening to this show, it's out on the shelves January of 2019. So Paul, tell people where they can find more about you and your work. 
Yeah, so my newsletter, The Sunday Dispatches, is at pjrvs.com. Or if you search in Google for Paul Jarvis, I'm the first page. And then the book, uh, Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing in Business, is on all digital um, shelves and should be in most bookstores as well. And the website for that is ofone.co. Awesome. Paul, it was great visiting with you. Hopefully we'll uh, catch up with you out there fishing or something in, in the west coast of Canada. Sounds good, John. Cheers. (laughs) 